In the world of police reform, accountability for misconduct depends on transparency, and that kind of transparency exists in very few places. So when a state finally does open up its files on police discipline, what do we learn? We talk to the two journalists behind On Our Watch. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your all-purpose justice nerd and your personal guide to every mystery in the criminal legal space. And still somehow managing to hang on to that excellent, wonderful day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Police misconduct, it's a phrase with a huge amount of resonance in today's discussions of public safety and criminal justice reform. Now, that's not in my estimation because all or even most police officers are committing misconduct. No, it's because when we hear about misconduct or even see it for ourselves, We don't always have confidence that it is dealt with properly, that those in uniform behaving in ways that are inappropriate or wrong or even illegal are disciplined or retrained or punished or even fired. In fact, for many Americans, a deep cynicism has crept into this discussion because they believe that failures of police discipline, failure of police to appropriately discipline their own is the norm and not an outlying experience. Of course, if more of us knew exactly what went on in the disciplinary process when officers don't conduct themselves properly, if we knew what that they were disciplined or retrained or something in ways that move them toward correct behavior and, of course, that got rid of those who don't belong in the job, we might feel differently. But we don't know because in most places, we can't know. We can't find out. In most places in the United States, police disciplinary records, the records of misconduct investigations, records of the discipline imposed or not, or of terminations, is hidden from the public. It is not transparent because of policies, because of custom and practice, because of state laws, because of collective bargaining agreements, and other legal barriers. Now, we all want accountability for misconduct involving any kind of government wrongdoing, but especially especially for police wrongdoing, given the special and unique powers police officers have in our society. The power to take away freedom, to use force, sometimes even to take life. These kinds of powers demand accountability. But accountability, as in accountability to the public whom the police are supposed to serve, that kind of accountability requires transparency. And in most places, that doesn't exist. In fact, the default is the opposite, legally enforced non-transparency. 
Here's an example that gives you an idea of what this means. In 2019, a national network of reporters spent a year, a full year, gathering all of the police misconduct records they could. It was a massive effort and uncovered over 80,000 records of misconduct and discipline cases. Nevertheless, the reporters could only make a start through this at uncovering what was out there. Here is James Pilcher, a reporter for the Cincinnati Inquirer, who was part of that massive project. This is him on the PBS NewsHour. Well, in many cases, it was difficult. We had to sue, in some cases, um, the, the, the police uh, unions and so forth have, have been able to make it very difficult to access some of this information. Um, and we still feel like we've only scratched the surface. Uh, we've covered maybe, a, you know, a tenth of the total agencies in this country. We've probably got data from about 700 to 800 different departments covering 80,000 officers. Well, there's 750,000 officers in this country at 18,000 different departments. So we're just getting started. You hear that? Just scratching the surface. Thus, the distrust of police discipline is really no surprise. But in the last few years, this has begun to change. We heard about the first crack in this enormous and seemingly unbreachable wall from our guest on episode 97, Jamie Calvin. Mr. Calvin, a journalist and human rights activist, spent more than a decade as a plaintiff, first in the federal courts and then in state court in Illinois, trying to pry open the disciplinary records of police officers in that state. He finally succeeded, and his organization, called the Invisible Institute, now has a website with all of those records available to everyone. The first state to take this on in legislation was California. In 2018, the state assembly passed a new law, SB 1421, that made records in police disciplinary processes available to the public for some of the most serious kinds of misconduct, deadly force cases, sexual misconduct allegations, and untruthfulness. When that law passed, reporters and newsrooms joined together across the state in something called the California Reporting Project to begin trying to obtain these records. It took time and persistence and even some litigation, but eventually they began to get information from inside the disciplinary process. What they found is the basis for a new podcast that you absolutely must hear called On Our Watch. The link is up on our website, and we have the central voices from the podcast here with us on this episode. Suki Lewis is a criminal justice reporter with KQED, a public radio and media outlet serving the San Francisco Bay Area and Northern California. She's the host of On Our Watch, a new podcast from NPR and KQED about the hidden world of police misconduct and discipline 
in California. In 2018, Ms. Lewis co-founded that California reporting project that I mentioned earlier, the coalition of newsrooms across the whole state focused on obtaining previously sealed internal affairs records from law enforcement. In addition to this recent deep look at police discipline, see, she has also investigated and reported on the bail bond industry and the high cost of prison phone calls. Sandia Dirks is the race and equity reporter for KQED, and she has reported and helped produce On Our Watch. Ms. Dirks covers policing, housing, social justice movements, and changing demographics in urban and suburban areas. She uses race and equity as a fundamental lens for all of her investigative and explanatory reporting. Before joining KQED, she covered the 2012 presidential election in Iowa for Iowa Public Radio. And while she was with KPBS Public Radio in San Diego, she broke the sexual harassment story. Three, two, one. She broke the sexual harassment story that led to the resignation of the mayor of San Diego. Suki Lewis and Sandia Dirks, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Hi, Dave. Hi. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. I'm so glad you could both be here. Now, On Our Watch is a really different kind of show about police. It's plowing new ground, I think, by focusing on the disciplinary process in law enforcement. And up to this point in California and most places, uh, the public, uh, we might see evidence of misconduct by some officers when it's reported in the media, but we never would have the chance to see what happens after that. Now, you've been reporting, both of you, on the criminal justice system for some time. Uh, Did you see the need to uh, investigate the disciplinary process as just as important or as a special issue uh, uh, compared to some of the other criminal justice issues you'd reported on before. Suki, let's start with you. Um, I think why we wanted to focus on that was because it was so hidden, right? Like we had wanted to know kind of the outcome of, you know, specific internal affairs investigations, you know, if there was a big kind of scandal in law enforcement and we wanted to know, okay, well, who was fired, you know, who got disciplined, who got suspended, and we never got to know that information. Um, and so this was like an opportunity to see something for the first time that had been so hidden, but also to look at the structures. Like we hear a lot about how, you know, this officer was involved in a shooting, but they had, you know, 10 prior excessive force complaints, you know, how does this come to be? And so it seemed to be also an opportunity to look at, well, why does that happen? There seems to be some kind of disconnect that's happening in the internal accountability process that maybe for the first time we can take a look at and see how that works and where that gap is occurring. So in California, this had been impossible. In most states, it would have been impossible prior to 2019 when a new law goes into effect. Um, what was the state of play if you ever tried to do this on a particular, you know, a one one case basis, if you tried to get information on the disciplinary process in the case of Officer X, who was involved in a shooting, what would it be like uh, in California before the new law? I mean, you you couldn't get it. it the, the, these records were 
officially confidential by law. Um, and that was has been the case in California since the 1970s. And there are different kind of laws that govern you know, different states. Uh, in New York, we recently saw the repeal of 50A, which was the right. restrictive kind of law around these records. And there's kind of a, a range or a spectrum of secrecy to openness that you see across the state. I think Florida has some of the most open laws around that. Um, but this was really interesting as well to go from a state of secrecy to a state of openness. So we would get to look back at cases where they thought it was going to be secret. And so it gave this really unique opportunity um, to see how a system operates in secret. Sandhya, your experience too? I mean, just really impossible, really difficult to get information? Zip zero zilch nada. I mean, you know, I covered a lot of police shootings. I've covered a lot of cases. I covered the Oakland um, uh, case where there was... um, rape and sexual assault charges against many, many, many officers. Oh, this was the Riders case, wasn't it? Riders is even back further, but Oakland PD, you go all the way back to the Riders. So many cases have happened and we've looked and we've wanted to know how the disciplinary process happens, but um, it's just been an impenetrable closed system. So the opportunity that this affords us to look in at these cases, and as Suki says, I think it's particularly important to note that This is not just looking at cases in kind of this general way. It's getting this window when they were doing this, when they thought no one would ever see. So you get to see them in an actually kind of a natural way, not a way that they think they're being watched, but the way that they really are. Oh, that is a very interesting point. It's something I really hadn't occurred to me. In the period when these recordings and and records and so forth are made, there is no sense that this stuff is ever coming out. Exactly. They think they they're making that they're doing these investigations with the presumption of the privacy laws that existed at the time, which uh, SB 1421, this law that opened up these records, then changes drastically. Um, And that was something that a lot of police agencies were not happy about and fought very hard against. Um, And Suki, I know you can talk a bit more about this, but uh, they, you know, really did not want to this law to apply retroactively. Right. So so let's talk about what it actually does uh, open up, because it it opens up all the records of police misconduct investigations. But all but in in limited categories is what I want to say. All of those in three important categories. What what are those three categories, Suki? So the three categories or primary categories that were opened up is. Um, cases of sexual misconduct on duty, um, cases of dishonesty that is kind of in their official capacity. And um, those are cases of the misconduct cases. And those only apply to sustained findings, which is basically like a guilty finding for administrative purposes. So you have to have an investigation that then they find the evidence that the officer did it and they sustain the finding in order to get those categories of misconduct. And the, the other category, which is not a you know, misconduct category on its face, but can include misconduct, is use of force that results in great bodily injury or death. Um, and anytime an officer shoots a gun, shoots their weapon. Um, so those are the other kind of category that we get to see. And um, you know, there's been a lot of dispute about 
what, you know, what qualifies as great bodily injury, when is a finding sustained, mm-hmm. because officers have such an extensive appeals process. And so within those categories, um, you know, if you talk to us, it, it perhaps means something Then it might to uh, how a department is defining it. So uh, one thing Sandia said a minute ago was that there was intense opposition, uh, both before the law was passed, but even after the law was passed, uh, and it became law, effect of 2019. And uh, you folks in journalism in California, the California Reporting Project, started to try to get information. It was all kinds of opposition, uh, I guess, coming from police unions and police organizations to keep this information from coming out. Uh, some of it based on this question of retroactivity, but more generally, too. Can you talk a little bit about that, Sandy? I seem to think you would know something. Yes, um, I know. I know. I know a thing or two. Uh-huh. About that. Um, so yeah, if we can put maybe put the kind of opposition in a couple piles. One is the litigation that was filed immediately, you know, even before the law went into effect, honestly, um, which argued that the law was not retroactive. So that thing that we were just talking about that made these records so interesting to us, that promise of confidentiality that they were created under was the thing that the police unions were using to argue that they should stay secret. And that only now that now that everybody knows the rules and they're not going to be confidential going forward, they can be open, but that these past ones that were created under this promise of confidentiality should be kept secret. Um, And that argument did not win in court, but it did delay things for a long time. And there were different lawsuits kind of all over the state of California, which, you know, the organization that we work for, KQED, was involved in some of that litigation and some of our other partners, um, media partners on the California Reporting Project and kind of defended the rights uh, of the public to get access to this information. And then the other thing that we've really seen is the tactics, now that the, that question of law is kind of settled, is like just getting the records. And this has been, is something that like, I don't think many people understand and it gets kind of boring and, and it was boring to do. And I think that's part of the point, which is just the kind of like war of attrition, like send another email. Did, where's my records? Did you send the thing? Oh, wait, looks like a page is missing. Could I have that one more page that you've got? And because we sent it to so many agencies, 700 different you know employers of police officers in California, you're trying to kind of maintain that correspondence and maintain that pressure with a lot of different people. And they, there's just these kind of arguments of stalling, you know, COVID, you know, before COVID, they had other reasons why they couldn't disclose the things. And so we find ourselves here now, two and a half years into this thing, still waiting for a lot of records that were, you know, made quote unquote public, you know, two and a half years ago. Yeah. Sandia, you're, you're nodding your head. Go ahead. I mean, so it, it is this it, it is this law, right, that these records are public, but it does not mean that they are instantly public, right? And and you have to do a lot of work to get them public. And there's no actual enforcement of of what happens other than suing these agencies, right? There's no enforcement mechanism to say, make them public now, other than really the the threat or the recourse of of of, of legal claims. And and I want to point out that you know the records we are waiting for come from some of the biggest agencies in California, right? We're talking Oakland Police Department, San Francisco Police Department, Los Angeles. Like these are the agencies that you would want to see. And those are the agencies that have been the most um 
resistant to producing these records. Um, so it is not what we have. While we have an amazing, you know, trove of these records, what we have is a very incomplete picture because a law has passed and these police agencies are not following it. That See, that is so interesting. Number one, as I got to say, as a lawyer and law professor, I'm deeply offended that, you know, here we are two years into it. And this this section of the government is just saying no, no. And, but this is so typical, too. It's not it's not really that unusual. But given the unique powers of policing and the public interest, especially in the last year, it is disturbing that it's still not happening. And uh, I'm interested uh, in what you said, some of the agencies covering the greatest number of people in your state have been the least responsive. And they're in the they're not in a position to say, oh, we just don't have the personnel to do this, uh, like maybe a very small police department would. Pardon me. But they don't have the personnel, according to them. Uh Some of them do argue that. Um, But I also think that you have to look. So, so the police department, you know, is they have their role and they're kind of above the records, if you will, that we're trying to get, but above them is also the city. And you have to look at the incentives of the city in terms of liability, in terms of all of the, these kind of nexus of things in terms of embarrassment. And so it's really the city's job to provide the records. It's really their obligation kind of even that supersedes, in my opinion, the obligation of the police department. But you know, they say, well, we have competing interests, we have other things. But I think it is also that with time, as time passes and you get further from incidents, the immediacy and the intensity of it drops, the public interest does drop, and the question of liability is lessened. Right. And they're actually, they actually may be counting on the interest dropping and people becoming less interested in making these records come out, uh, which is where this sort of persistence and, you know, I hate the cliche, but the shoe leather really comes in uh, when you say this is just constant work and it's really boring and so forth. I just want people to know that in every profession, this is, this is the, this is the bread and butter. This is the stuff you do every day and you persist in doing is how you make something work. And that's what I see in your answer to that question. I keep at it. I keep at it. It really comes through in the podcast too, that this is something you've had to do. Yeah. We call it the the montage, like in, in the movie, it's where like all the boring stuff is happening. You know, it's really important. It takes a lot of time, but, but you cut to the montage. <laughs> right. Right. Now, one thing that I found so interesting and I, I really wasn't expecting it um, was uh, you know, I I thought, oh, the records are going to come. It's going to be papers because that's what the records are. But it turns out that among the more interesting and revealing things you get are actual recordings of interviews. So we're actually hearing the voices of the people and, and, and hearing the audio on the podcast from some of the incidents themselves. Isn't that right, Sandhya? I mean, that is that is why this is such a perfect story to tell in the podcast and the audio medium and as, as an audio narrative, because, yes, you do get these papers and you I mean, there are there's no shortage of papers um, that we have to go through and police reports and other, you know, IA investigations and all of those things. But what really 
makes it come alive in this way that is incredibly intimate and present is actually being able to go through the power of audio into the interrogation rooms where police investigate their own. And that is some of the kind of the most shocking uh, tape you can get. You can hear tone of voice. You can hear the kind of way in which a police officer who's supposed to interrogate another police officer might be buddy-buddy. And that, that wouldn't have been in the police report, but you can hear them greeting each other. All of these little things actually allow us to really get the feel of how these investigations happen that the paper can't convey. And I think one of the most sort of striking moments where this hit home for me isn't just listening to them, but it was, it's in uh, talking to a family member who was listening to some of these tapes. And this was the investigation of, of their son who had been killed. And they said it was listening to the audio that really, really brought them there in a way reading the records never could. Yeah. And that is so striking as you go through this. I, I found myself kind of mentally looking forward as I listened to the end, to the episodes, to those segments, like, oh, what is he going to say? How is he going to present it? That sort of thing. It was, it was just, it, it really captured the attention of the listener. I can't recommend it uh, more highly than I already have. I mean, uh, it is uh, a, a, as a, as an opportunity for here we go with the cliches again, the fly on the wall thing. It's really unsurpassed. Um, I do a lot of work studying body cameras and body camera footage. And that is really interesting stuff. But it is in, it is in a, an environment that is often not very controlled. So it has flaws. It can only capture certain things and so forth. When, you're, when you have a live audio recorder in a room with two people, there aren't going to be doubts about what was said. It's all there down to the tone of voice. Yeah, yeah. I'll just jump in on that too, which is one of the things I think that we find really interesting is if you're familiar with reading police reports at all, um, you're getting their press releases, they're so anesthetized, right? It's like so-and-so was standing in a bladed stance and we did this and then the thing ended. And Oh, it, yeah. The rest was we affected our arrest or something and it's very kind of cloaked in the official language and um, kind of taken, you know, taken away from from the scene. And, you know, even with kind of disciplinary matters and stuff, you know, they have their little finding sheet that is like, this allegation was sustained, conduct unbecoming, you know, and it's very like, uh, removed or divorced from like, what was the activity that the person was doing that was wrong. And this gave us this opportunity to go into that and see what does it mean? What does this te texture mean? Where are the people here? Where are the characters? And what is kind of hidden behind those kind of official statements and official language? Yeah, I, I would even use the word sanitized for a lot of reports. I mean, all the blood is sort of drained out of it. It's like taking a sponge and squeezing out every little drop and what you have left is sort of dry and empty. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Suki Lewis on Sandia Dirks of KQED and NPR talking about their incredible new podcast called On Our Watch. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, we're back. It's Criminal Injustice. Our guests on this episode are Suki Lewis and Sandia Dirks. They're with KQED in the Bay Area 
uh, and NPR, and they've got a podcast that you must hear called On Our Watch, and it takes the records that have been released since 2019 with the passage of a new California law, records on police discipline in misconduct cases, and turns them into a set of stories uh, from which you will learn a lot, be horrified, uh, be awakened, uh, don't miss it. Of course, the link to it is on our website. Uh, let me ask you, um, uh, if you would pick, say, one story, I mean, I sort of have my favorite uh, uh, among those I've heard so far um, that you covered in the first few episodes, um, you know, just give us sort of the nutshell version um, um, and, and tell us about something you would not have known, not have discovered, not have been able to figure out without the particular audio and video recordings you got. I mean, one that really stood out for me was that, that one with the woman who was bitten by the police dog, but you can, you can pick anyone you want. One of the reasons that we picked this one for the for the first episode was these were the first records that we got back. But it's not just that the reporting that Suki did around this case actually changed outcomes. Um, and so, you know, the story begins in the small town in Rio Vista, California, um, with a woman calling nine one one. Um, and the police, uh, she's this is not the first time she's called 911, and the police believe that she's abusing the 911 system, and they make a plan to arrest her. Um, they go to her house, knock on the door. There is video camera footage of this. It's pretty disturbing. The audio is pretty disturbing as well, because during uh, this arrest that they're attempting to make, which is in and of itself a questionable arrest, um, the, the dog, the police dog that's in the back of the car somehow accidentally according to you know what people found gets out and attacks this this woman violently bites down on her arm um and this begins uh, a really long process for Catherine Jenks and also for the police officers who came to arrest her that day and how did the audio or video that you received reveal something about this that you might not have known if you let's say just gotten paper records I mean, I think the big thing that was revealed in that one by the audio and the, the body cam was the discrepancy about um, Catherine Jenks' boyfriend, David O'Reilly. So they describe him in police reports as being aggressive and that they thought he was going to like stop them from arresting his girlfriend and that he was threatening and, and that they were afraid of him. And in the audio, um, you can hear him. I mean, he's, he's upset. He's emotional but he is not at all aggressive or threatening. And I think at one point he's even like, the officer's like, where are you going? What are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm trying to get the cat to put the cat back inside the house. You know, like this is not a man who is going to stop police from arresting somebody. Um, he, uh, it just, and it just is so clear in the, in the tape itself. And, and if you didn't have that, you might just, you know, read the police report or something and be like, oh, okay. Like he was, he was an aggressive, threatening guy. Yeah. So as you think through the various episodes that you've done, uh, it seems to me you've got some themes emerging from all of this. Um, uh, one thing that you say in an early episode um, is that um, the uh, 
the investigations by internal affairs uh, rarely report the existence of possible criminal activity to the district attorney's office. Uh, that's something that seems to recur in a lot of these episodes. Yeah, I think that was one of our kind of big findings, which was that in, internal affairs has so much power, you know, they have the power to decide to do an investigation or to not, you know, they can just say, we don't want to investigate that complaint or we think it's unfounded. And, you know, what they decide to do is really different kind of depending on what department you're in and so forth. It's such a patchwork system. Um, but this decision point that they have as well is whether to refer the case to the district attorney for potential criminal charges. Um, and it appears from when it's when it's in-house with some of the sexual misconduct cases and some of the dishonesty cases in particular that we got that there is a reluctance um, on the part of the department to do that uh, referral to the district attorney, which would then also open up these internal affairs records and, and these you know, potential cases of criminal misconduct to other eyes, to eyes outside of the department. Yeah, yeah. A, a sort of closely related theme that I picked up on is the idea of what internal affairs is really about what is it really for i mean i think most people and i include myself as a you know person who's looked at this and studied it you know we think it's about accountability to the public but it really doesn't seem like that is the major role that it plays within these agencies so what was your feeling about that sandhya i think early on you know Suki and I have talked about this, right? Because this is the accountability system for police, right? If police do something mm -hmm. wrong, this is the system that holds them accountable. There is no other, unless of course they are referred to the criminal system. And then there is of course the last recourse, which is the courts, right? The civil civil courts, which is often where this stuff ends up being litigated. Right. Um, but, but in terms of kind of holding these officers accountable, that begins uh, with the internal affairs process. And first of all, when we say internal affairs, we're not talking about any one standardized system because it is a patchwork quilt of different systems that looks different in every single agency. Internal affairs is True. not one thing. And so it, it is not standardized at all. There's no standardization in how they do these investigations and how they um, kind of look into these different cases and what cases they look into. That is all independently decided in the agency. So there's really no oversight or kind of overarching way in which internal affairs operate. So for one, the accountability system is not at all kind of, it doesn't have any standardization. And for two, it becomes very clear that it is less of an accountability system and more of sort of a liability protection system, right? It looks a lot yes. more like HR in a company than it does like, you know, a justice system. And I think that's a really important thing to do, thing to look at and thing to acknowledge that HR we know does not necessarily operate in, in, in a way that is about justice, that is about, you know, finding out the truth. It's about protecting those who are liable, which in this case is the city and the police department. Yeah. And that, see, that I think is such an important insight here. The, uh, the way that it functions, no matter what we think about it or what it's called or how, or, or its organization, the way it functions is as a protective device 
for the department, for the city, uh, the law department, whatever it is, and much less so with the idea of, well, we're going to protect the public from people maybe shouldn't be on the job. And I just sort of want to, you know, to, to that case we were talking about earlier, the case of Catherine Jenks. The one where the woman was bitten by the dog. And the police officers uh, were found to have lied on their on their police reports, right? They were found to have lied about what happened that night and how they wrote it up and how they told the story. Um, well, you know, one of those police officers, one of them was uh, on a probationary period, so was let go. And the other one was at that point fired. Uh although she did get her job back later, but was was fired for the way she handled that case. Um, but one of the things that happened was that the charges against Catherine Jenks remained, right? So that the she was still being prosecuted for what happened that night, even though it was based on... Uh, it was based on what the investigation found to be at that point lies in a in a in a police report lies by made by these police officers and a false arrest um and the issue there is that even when the system is looking at these police officers and sort of holding them accountable um in in that moment although later arbitration happens which undoes undoes that accountability um but even though the the system is looking at them it's not actually rippling out to the woman who is impacted, the woman who was injured and then charged. Um, and that's the, the, the kind of the breakdown of the system to when it gets to the public is, is notable even in internal affairs investigations that seem on the surface to be actually invest, investigating and getting at the truth. Yeah. Um, another thing I think that emerges as sort of a theme here is the place of untruthfulness, of lying in reports. Uh, and lying to uh, other cops. Um, this, I think, can seem to a lot of people in today's world like maybe not the biggest deal or kind of small potatoes um, next to something like shooting somebody and killing them. Uh, but to me, this, is, this goes to the heart of what the job is, what the obligations are, and uh, how police culture evolves and sustains itself um, if this kind of thing goes unaddressed. I mean, there are legal obligations to be truthful, the Brady obligations where uh, the prosecution has to turn over evidence uh, that might be, uh, that might result in an acquittal or that would result in less punishment. And evidence that the police officer has not told the truth is certainly part of that. And if these things aren't pursued, that constitutional obligation doesn't get pursued in any kind of serious way. Um, what were your feelings about what you saw as far as the lying to each other on reports and so forth? Suki? Yeah, so the episode that we have coming out this week actually really kind of digs into dishonesty by police officers and what it means and why it's so important. And as you mentioned, kind of the Brady obligations that are triggered. Um, and I think that like what it's really important for your listeners to remember and to hold in their mind is how important and powerful the word of a police officer is. Yes. They say, I need to pull this per person over. And that's the justification, you know, for a traffic stop. You know, they say this person was doing this. That's the justification for an arrest. They say this on the stand, that person goes to jail. And so it is this incredibly, incredibly powerful thing. 
And anything that undermines that is also very problematic, both for prosecutors and for the departments. And so while it is this thing that is kind of so, so sacred and so holy, and we're told police don't lie, they don't have any reason to lie, and juries tend to believe them sometimes more than, than other witnesses, um, we also have to look at what the incentives are that are supposed to be seeking out those lies and be disclosing those lies to criminal defendants so that they have all the information they need to mount their own defense. And so if you just think about it, like what is your reason for arresting this person? Well, they were resisting arrest. And the person says, I was not resisting. The police officer's lying. Who are you gonna believe? And this is what is like so kind of key and foundational because that is also becomes the justification for use of force. And that also then becomes the justification for deadly use of force. So you're talking about shootings and thinking about well, you know, maybe a lie is not as important as a shooting, but sometimes the lie is there at the beginning that is the reason for the shooting. That is about as well articulated as I've ever heard that point put. Um, a police officer, a, a, a command officer I used to work with a lot would stress to her dying day uh, how important it was to have good police reports and how they had to be truthful. And she pulled up a number of the people under her command uh, short and disciplined them and so forth. And for that, she had a, a uh, let's say, difficult reputation within her police department. But she saw it just as clearly as you do, uh, the importance of truthfulness within all of this work. So with all that you have seen so far, because you're still very much in the thick of it, you're still getting records or not waiting for them, uh, with all that you've seen of the disciplinary process, um, can each of you think of one or two things you think are key to improving this? Is it beyond improvement? Is there something you would say uh, that we just must do if we're to have a real accountability and disciplinary process that works not just for the agencies, but for the people? Uh, Sandhya, why don't you go first? Well, it's it's not journalist's job to prescribe the best answers. Of course, In but I'm pulling you out of that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what we're here to do is, is what we have done some diagnosis, I think, of some of the, the, the pressure points and the points of weakness within the system. And I think what this podcast and what this work raises is some real questions about whether or not police can police themselves and whether or not they can do so in a secret system. Because it does seem very clear that secrecy is corrosive and corruptive. And that the drive to keep things secret, right, actually creates more issues, creates more problems and perpetuates lies into bigger to bigger issues. Um, and I think that what we found through looking through these records is real, real, real problems with the accountability system as it stands. And there is a question as this looks to be an HR system, as this looks to be a liability protection system. If we want something that's more like a justice system, and if we want to argue that that's something that is good for police officers as it is for the public, then... Uh, then maybe that we need to look at the way the system is as it stands and wonder if it actually is set up to bring justice or rather if it's set up to protect police. Zuki, what's your take? You know, I, I mean, I think Sandia said it all very well. Um, but I think that, you know, again, it's, it's for the public to decide what they want 
this system that is built with their money and is supposed to be protecting them what they want it to do. And I think we've heard a lot, you know, over the past year and, and, and before, obviously, but very loudly in the last year that it is not working for large segments of the public. And so I think as we're looking at that and diagnosing, you know, why isn't it working, that this piece, the disciplinary piece and the internal affairs piece is a very, very key piece in order to regain some kind of trust and um, be able to, to actually truly promise accountability. That is Suki Lewis, along with her colleague, Sandia Dirks. They are both with KQED and they have created a great new podcast you've got to hear called On Our Watch, which features investigations based on newly disclosed police disciplinary and misconduct records from California. You can find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And of course, we have a link to it up on our website. Thanks a lot for being my guest here today on Criminal Injustice. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, Dave, for having us. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Division. And this episode's lawyer slash judge behaving badly brought to us by the Arkansas Times and the ABA Journal News Online is Circuit Judge Barry Sims of Pulaski and Perry Counties in Arkansas. It seems that Judge Sims has a problem. He is rude, discourteous, inappropriate in manner. One might wonder whether the problem has deeper roots than just rudeness, since, at least in the incidents that made it to the Arkansas Judicial Discipline Commission, all of the victims of his temperament were female and all were public defenders. Something about that combination seems to set him off. In one incident in April of 2019, with the public defender questioning a witness, Judge Sims actually got up and left the bench. He walked out of court. He also wouldn't allow the attorney to object appropriately, and his, quote, expression, demeanor, and actions alarmed other attorneys and spectators. Close quote. I would think so. Imagine the impression it gives the courtroom. Want to know what the judge thinks of this attorney's case? He walks out and acts rudely. In another criminal case, Judge Sims called the attorney to the bench while those attorneys were screening potential jurors. He made a point of questioning the way the public defender was doing her job with the potential jurors. Again, female public defender. Judge Sims asked the public defender if her client had a defense, a real defense, and whether the client would accept a guilty plea, giving all involved the impression that he was trying to force the case in that direction. The public defender seemed to have had a more deep understanding, shall we say, of her own case than Judge Sims did. The jury acquitted her client. In yet another case, involving yet another female public defender, Judge Sims asked the public defender in open court if she was going to file another judicial complaint against him if she didn't accept a plea deal. The public defender had not, in fact, filed 
any complaint at any time against Judge Sims, but when all of this came to the Judicial Commission's attention, it said that his actions suggested that he would retaliate if someone did file a complaint or if they assisted in the investigation of a complaint. All in all, the record of a bully. And in the words of my late mother, rest in peace, who would almost never swear, quote, a real A.H. You figure it out. Other complaints and allegations against Judge Sims were not litigated because he agreed to the findings and recommendations of the commission, which included a letter of censure, but not removal from the bench, a 90-day suspension that will be limited to 30 days if he takes some remedial steps. These include taking a class on mindfulness, patience, or civility with a judicial training organization, and hiring a counselor or life coach, quote, to help consult with him about how he treats professionals appearing in his court. Ha! Well, people of Pulaski County and Perry County, I hope that's satisfactory for you. And I would be willing myself to provide the counseling to Judge Sims at no charge. In fact, let's put the whole session on tape right here and now. Hey, Judge, treat people like you would like people to treat your own mother. And listen to what my mother said. Don't be an A-H. Understand? And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And with it, we wrap up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to the Ask Dave tab on our website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question at 412-407-3389. Again, 412-407-3389. Please remember, we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I am David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Thank you.